Hello, and welcome to the In Session Podcast. I'm your host, Alan Etzler, joined today by News Post State Government reporter, Samantha Hogan. Samantha, how are you doing? Um, it's nice to be in the studio again for once yeah. and, and not um, down in Annapolis, though I was there for quite a few days. Yeah, I was going to say, you, you uh, have spent a lot of time down there, so it's probably good to get back every now and then. It is, to uh, see Frederick in all its glory. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and to be close to, to your house. That's and my cat, yep. Yeah, okay. Um, <laughs> So, you know, crossover day was Monday in the, in the General Assembly. That's a big a big time of session, a big time of year in, in state politics. So can you kind of break down what, what went on this week, especially uh, on, on crossover day? Yeah, because crossover day is really both a formal um, cutoff point when we're supposed to see bills go over to the opposite chambers that, you know, it's really a sign that something has momentum and is going to to make it through. But it also is kind of this informal uh, moment because uh, there are still bills that have only made it through one uh, one chamber and are still being considered and are just being voted on now. So we're still going to see some things that are ultimately most likely going to make it through um, that did not make it over during crossover. But it is this important both formal and informal deadline. One of the most important things that we saw happen actually um, following crossover was both the House and Senate agreed on language to move Maryland to a $15 minimum wage. This increase would be phased in over the next six years, um, and the phase-in would be actually be a little bit longer for companies that have less than 14 employees. That was a change that we saw the state Senate um, approve on and that the House came on board with uh, during a conference committee. Um, however, this will not include raises uh, for tipped workers. Their base wage is going to stay the same as it was before this whole discussion began. Um, another interesting thing that we saw the House and Senate both pass in the past uh, two weeks is Delegate Karen uh, Lewis Young's bill um, that prevented uh, minors under the age of 18 from using commercial tanning beds that emit UV light um, also made it through both bodies. The, the debate really centered on whether the burns from these beds could later lead to cancer. And there is a significant body of research showing that individuals who use tanning beds before the age of 25 do have an increased ris- risk of later developing certain kinds of skin cancer. So it was interesting to hear the debate on that and to see the body actually come behind this in its first year as a bill. Something that, you know, maybe many of our listeners won't be surprised to hear, though, is that we did see some changes to some brewing laws also come through. Um, Beer franchise uh, laws, which is essentially these relationships that exist between the people that brew the beer and the wholesalers and retailers uh, that then turn around and sell the beer for brewers. Um, A uh, substantial overhaul to the the state's um, franchise laws passed the House. Um, We have it's just starting to appear in the Senate. They're just starting to debate it, but it has passed the House already. And um, essentially what this means is that any brewery that is uh, producing less than 20,000 barrels of beer a year will be exempt from the state's franchise laws. This gives our craft breweries, which we have a fair amount of them here in Frederick County, um, more time to ramp up their production to get their brand to be known to really, you know, grow at a reasonable pace without having to worry about entering into very binding contracts with wholesalers to move their beer um, and have those kind of franchise agreements, which is often, you know, a scary first step for these small producers to go through. 
So it just gives them a little bit more time and a little bit more leeway to delay that. What we're also seeing is the Brewery Modernization Act of 2019 um, is moving forward. It's passed the House. Essentially, this bill will allow certain license holders to increase the volume of beer that they brew and sell on site annually. And this is, once again, something that we're expecting to see help Frederick County craft breweries. Um, I just want to flip it over. We heard a lot about of what the House has been doing, but let's go back to the Senate. Um, they are working on a bill to raise the minimum age to buy tobacco and nicotine products to 21. Senator Michael Huff um, from here, from Frederick and Carroll, uh, rallied enough support on the floor of the Senate to get an exemption for individuals who hold a military ID. Um, he likes to tell people, and I think it's a known fact, that he at 18 enlisted in the U.S. Air Force. Uh, he worked on Minuteman missiles. He's, you know, lived the military life, and he just thinks that it's a, it's a little contradictory that we should let um, people at age 18 uh, sign up to defend their country, but then say, I'm sorry, you can't smoke a cigarette, you can't drink a beer. So he's at least trying to preserve uh, the ability of them to buy uh, tobacco products. There's obviously still health questions, and that was raised. However, he did get enough support to get this amendment onto the Senate version of the uh, bill. Um, the underlying purpose, though, as I kind of mentioned, is like, really health reasons. And there is concern um, that middle school students are getting um, more access to uh, nicotine products, including the rise of e-cigarettes. Um, me and the health reporter, Heather Mongilio, reported earlier in session on how Maryland had received an F grade uh, for having an 18-year-old uh, smoking uh, to purchase uh, tobacco products and also uh, for the rise of e-cigarette use in the state. Uh, the Senate is also working through a final decision on whether or not it's going to abolish the statewide handgun permit review board. It's looking more and more like the Senate is going to vote to dismantle this board and send all concealed handgun permits um, appeals to the Office of Administrative Hearings. The executive nomination committee, which is uh, chaired by Senator Ron Young, uh, voted 10 to 5 to repeal the board earlier this week. And then judicial proceedings um, a day later was evenly split down the middle 5 to 5. And the chairman, Bobby Zirkin of Baltimore, uh, split that tie in favor of repealing the board. So that has reached the Senate floor. And they were actually debating that earlier on Friday. Um, just a couple of other local things of note, the Patients' Bill of Rights uh, passed the House unanimously um, after four years of negotiations. So that was a huge win for Delegate Karen Lewis Young. Um, there is also a bill that would update a portion of the county's ethics uh, law that passed last year, I believe. And um, that was uh, passed unanimously by the House. Um, it wasn't exactly what Delegate Jesse Pippi, who's a freshman in the House of Delegates, had envisioned when he submitted it at the start of the at the start of the session. Instead of having to close an existing campaign finance count in order to uh, serve on one of Frederick County's boards of zoning appeals, ethics commission, planning commission, or the liquor board, uh, now they're going to have to just uh, be limited on how they can use that account. So the committee agreed uh, to modify the bill so that members cannot solicit receive, deposit, or use contributions from within the board, um, or make expenditures um, to, uh, except for paying civil fees and penalties. Um, the bill also modifies so that any outstanding obligations of the account holder had to be paid before they could serve on those boards. There was some concern about whether or not um, Frederick County's local ethics law could be extrapolated out to other counties that might want to move forward with a similar ethics ordinance. Um, I think that's why we saw some hesitation on wanting to close the accounts. There's also some precedent um, down in Annapolis, uh, people that are serving as delegates or senators uh, 
uh, have to kind of put their accounts in these dormant modes while they're in the 90-day legislative session. It's kind of more mirrored off of that off than a, um, a strict closing as we have now. Um, Delegate Jesse Pippi also got unanimous support for an overhaul to the state's human trafficking laws and to launch a pilot at the Frederick County Public Schools um, in the elementary schools to focus on emotional learning. We don't have a ton of details on what that's going to look like yet. Um, He gave a lot of control to the Board of Education and the superintendent and other mental health professionals inside the school system to really develop that. But that will be something interesting to follow up on. For sure. And it sounds like uh, Delegate Pippi has been uh, quite active. Early on in his uh, in his first term, at least first session down down in Annapolis. Absolutely, I know when we you know so he uh, delegate Dan Cox and uh, delegate Ken Kerr are all brand new to the delegation. Um, they all put in a substantial amount of bills. I would say probably delegate Dan Cox had the most bills uh, and definitely went down the most varied of alleys. <laughs> and he's had some success. And you know other things he's withdrawn and he's you know he's looking forward to taking back during his second term. And we've talked about those things and you know i think we're definitely going to see him do a lot of interesting things in years to come but what's interesting about delegate jesse pippi is he really has just latched onto a few unique topics and seen great success um persuading the rest of the house of delegates and hopefully the the senate in um getting behind his perspective on why we need uh some fixes i mean definitely an overhaul of human trafficking laws in your first year i mean to to have written a bill well enough to do that and to also then persuade people to understand why we need to do that. It's a huge win for him. Right, exactly. And that's something we've seen at the county level too uh, with with ordinances and bills that are being passed in order to kind of combat uh, human trafficking. So it's it's interesting to see the state taking it on as a whole as well. And it's obviously also been a priority of Governor Larry Hogan for quite some time. Um, uh, Jesse Pippi has been a supporter of, of Hogan and his policies and has you know signed on to many of his bills uh, this session. So it's, it's not surprising to see a lot of those priorities line up. Right. I, I want to talk about a story that uh, was in your political notes column uh, today, and that's regarding milk. Um, I hope my girlfriend is listening because she is a fervent almond milk drinker. No. I prefer I prefer regular milk, and she tells me to put almond milk in my cereal because it's healthier, and I tell her it's not milk. I might actually be proven right here soon. Is that right? Well, I guess it's how you want to define proven right. <laughs> well, I've never been proven right in an argument with her, so. Well, yeah, yeah I mean, that sounds like a personal problem. Um, but, you know, Maryland state farmers are also having a personal problem nationally with how the FDA is allowing um, products to be labeled as milk. Now, soy milk, I mean, just think of silk. Think of the brand um, that they've built for themselves. Um, that ha- they, It's been on the market for decades. And so um, what there is concern, though, is that um, the as more and more plant-based alternatives have come onto the market, they're starting to undercut um, the dairy industry, which we all know is struggling nationally and locally here in Frederick County um, with farms going out of business, people selling their herds, people getting, you know, just moving into different um, areas of farming or leaving farming altogether. And so uh, I see it as a big win for farmers uh, this week uh, when the state Senate 
um, gave its preliminary approval for Maryland to be the second signatory on an 11-state compact that would ban the labeling of soy, almond, coconut, and other plant-based beverages as milk. North Carolina was the first to sign this compact and actually came up with the whole framework for it. Um, The uh, Senate passed it with a pretty fair margin. It was a vote of 36 to 10. Now, obviously, this still needs to go to the House of Delegates, which has a slightly different version of this bill. It hasn't had the Farm Bureau's um, amendment, which uh, specifically um, adds on the 11-state compact, whereas uh, when the bill was originally submitted, it was an outright ban just in Maryland. This is a much um, more enforceable approach um, and has a lot more leverage to also get the states to force FDA to ultimately enforce its own definition, which already outlines that milk technically is the lacteal secretions from a mammal. So um, the, ultimately, they do want to see a federal solution to this, but this is a, uh, a statewide step towards showing um, that they don't think that these plant products uh, should be labeled as milk. You can go back uh, three years deep for sure on me covering this. I, um, I, I'm i a little surprised, actually, to see um, the Senate uh, side with farmers. Um, you know, I... It's an interesting debate for sure. We definitely also have a dairy farm here in Frederick County that is currently in the midst of a First Amendment lawsuit um, over or not whether something should be labeled milk. Uh, So there's a lot of moving parts right now, and it's very interesting. Now, there is like such thing as coconut water. So when we when we if this were to become a thing, we can't call it soy water. So what do we end up calling them? Uh, Several things have been thrown out. Uh, The idea of calling it a beverage, calling it a drink, just calling it something of that nature so in the in in parts of europe it's my understanding that they already don't allow this to be called milk so if you go to a trader joe's it would be a soy beverage i'm pretty sure or a soy product so there are some uh they sound a little weird now um but potentially things that consumers could be uh you know relearn Mm -hmm. um whether or not where would they be sold it, well, currently it's sold pretty close to milk in the dairy yeah. in the dairy aisle. One of the uh, opponents uh, to being able to call soy milk milk um, said, "I don't care. Put it next to the Gatorade." That's <laughs> uh, fair. You know, because it's another product. But what's interesting is it, it's not just pure regulation on these things either. Uh, companies pay for placement in mm-hmm. grocery stores you know whether or not you ever wonder why in in items at the end of a of a grocery store aisle rather than the middle well someone is paying for that kind of prime placement so there's a lot more at at play than just a company deciding whether or not it wants to put milk on its label whether it wants to be beverage are they going to allow to be able to be sold from the dairy case a lot of questions and no one's denying that there is a need for these um products on the market say if you're lactose intolerant even though some dairy farmers would say oh we just want you to buy 2a milk instead which apparently um reduces one of the the enzymes that can inflame people that have lactose intolerance but you know like these products are they're not saying you can't make these products what they're saying is please take the word milk off the Mm -hmm. label I got you. Well, that'll be interesting to continue to watch and see, uh, especially after Maryland, if Maryland does sign on, what other states uh, follow suit as well. I want to talk a little bit about the capital budget because, yeah, you had a story, uh, I believe that was also in today's paper, on there are going to be uh, several 
projects funded in this capital budget uh, in Frederick that are Frederick County specific, and uh, one in particular caused a little bit of uh, turmoil or shock among the delegation. Yeah, and I think that turmoil partially stemmed from the fact that the House is dealing with the budget first, so it's you know its operating budget came out first, and then its capital budget came out first, and they've changed how they. Uh, assess local priorities in the capital budget this year. So there are a couple factors in that. One of the what you're referring to is $200,000 that has been set aside for the YMCA, specifically the one in downtown Frederick, which flooded um, in 2018 during all that rain and, and flooding that we had in downtown. Um, and it was actually a little uh, unsettling to with yesterday's rain and all the flood warnings coming in over my phone um, to be talking to the YMCA about about you know what they've been able to do, they had 1.4 million dollars worth of damage during the 2018 flood, and so 200 thousand dollars is really a drop in the bucket for them to be able to put additional flood protections around the building that can include some brick walls, some flood doors, and then additional an additional backup generator for them to run water pumps should water infiltrate the building again. Um, Delegate Karen Lewis-Young was initially concerned about seeing a full um, allocation to this project because it hadn't been the expressed uh, uh, desire of the delegation to see this specific project funded because there is $400,000 already earmarked in the governor's capital budget um, for building a South County YMCA. So there was some concern about how much money was going to the YMCA, not saying it's not a valid project, but we did have a lot of um, organizations coming to the delegation asking for money this year. Um, After the Senate budget came out, we did see several of those projects end up getting money. Um, Notably, the city of Brunswick is uh, scheduled to receive um, $100,000 for a $600,000 drinking water repair to its Yordi Springs, which is um, a, a source of its drinking water that had to be shut down um, when groundwater infiltrated uh, the spring during the 2018 flood. Um, it, it's just a contamination issue. It is advantageous for Brunswick to fix this, though, because it, it costs a dollar to uh, purify 300 gallons of the spring water and a dollar to purify a gallon, one gallon hmm. of, of Potomac River water. Um, you know, obviously, you're dealing with a lot of different variables when you're dealing with a surface water source versus a groundwater source. Uh, but that was just startling to me that it could be that big of a gallon difference. Um, Um, And you can obviously see how that might be reflected on people's water bills as well. Something I do want to point out that did not get any money um, and something that some of our delegation is still looking for um, is the downtown hotel and conference center project and the associated infrastructure with that. Um, There is $1.5 million earmarked in fiscal year 2021 for the project. However, uh, there's no money currently in the 2020 budget for the downtown hotel. Senator Ron Young told me that he's still in conversations, hoping to get some money into the capital budget uh, next year for the hotel and conference center. Um, I'm not sure if it's going to get in there. There is a write down um, happening of projected revenues in the state. Uh, They're looking to make cuts. They're reassigning uh, 
bills with large fiscal notes to budget and tax in the Senate, trying to cut, find ways to cut down on what the bills are asking to do in order to reduce potential expenditures on behalf of the state. So whether or not we're going to actually see, you know, uh, any kind of big price tag come along with that, I'm not, I'm not sure that 2019 is the year for that. Okay. And and we had, again, another story that we had in today's paper. Um, I know a lot happened at the end of the I, week. I know, <laughs> yeah, as it usually does, was the, the termination of Crest. Um, and so that news came out yesterday out of their meeting. What can you tell me about what has been happening in Annapolis regarding Crest and maybe what the future is for the program? Yeah. So- if there is one. Yeah, so this has been something that I have been following since the Crest Board of Directors and their executive director, Joanne Horn, actually made the trip down to Annapolis to say, uh, we didn't get any funding in the governor's budget. So they had been generally receiving in the realm of $230,000 a year from the state to run the uh, STEM program at Crest. They have not attracted a lot of students and they have not offered a lot of courses. And that is how the state measures success and what the state has turned around and said as their justification for not giving them money. Um, the board of directors asked for between sixty and $70,000 um, this year um, in, the ca- in the operating, uh, I don't remember which state budget, I apologize, um, for uh, Crest to continue to operate through the end of 2019. The board of directors, however, our education reporter, uh, Wyatt Massey, reported um, has decided to terminate all its programming in July. Uh, This is a huge blow because they had planned to launch a bioengineering program in the fall. They typically have secondary science educators come in during the summer and uh, take uh, courses and lab uh, lab hours that they need in order to um, remain certified. Uh, So the few areas where they thought they were really going to turn around and have more students, that's going to go away um, if they do terminate programming in July. Initially, the house had uh, approved $50,000 for the center, um, but they won't have access to that money until July. So it's looking like like Crest is gone. Would you agree? Uh, I mean, yeah, so I I would think so. I guess they they did mention that uh, if they receive more funding, they could reevaluate. But even so, even if they don't terminate the programming and they keep the staff on, uh, they have to show some real results in a really short period of time. Yeah, uh, and, and we're talking about $20,000 difference, right. right? They got they're supposedly going to get $50,000. They asked for a maximum of 70,000. I don't understand how, you know, if you can get to July with what you've got and then you're going to get $50,000, there must be more underlying the whole conversation than what we're privy to at this time. I I think the challenge for Crest has been, and especially as somebody who sat on some meetings when I was covering education, um, the people on the board, the board consists of several college presidents. Yes. And I can't count on two hands the number of times I have heard the Crest board say they have, or the Crest executive director, Joanne Horn, come up with this idea that she thinks is a great idea uh, and pitch it to the board. And the college presidents in particular respond by saying, well, we're already doing that. And so I think the board never really found a way for Crest to find a niche, much less get students in. Or I don't think it really ever found its role. 
Yeah, and I've heard very similar, you know, sentiments from other individuals. So I think you're pretty uh, right on right there. Yeah, I, I want to move because today you were down uh, covering the sixth district gerrymandering uh, issue that I guess we've been following. <laughs> issue. Yes, ge- just generally <laughs> with a capital speaking. I. Yeah. <laughs> um, and we're gonna have a special visitor. Uh, well, not us. Uh, DC will have a special visitor uh, next week when the Supreme Court takes this up. Uh, the Terminator is going to be outside <laughs> of the U.S. Supreme Court, and I, you know, I, I can't even I can't even do justice to the voice because I've only ever seen. No like, one can do that. Voice, I, you know, and worry. I've I, well, and I've also only ever seen clips, so like maybe I shouldn't like <laughs> announce this like very publicly on a podcast. But I haven't seen the Terminator movies, and that's on my list. You know, if someone knows the best way for me to watch them, has strong feelings about them, wants to send me a copy, sounds great. But um, the the Terminator Arnold Schwarzenegger was not um, in an today uh, for the last meeting of the Emergency Commission of Sixth District Gerrymandering set up by the governor at the end of last year. Um, they were nearing the end of a public comment period um, on some proposed maps uh, that were um, drawn at the request, well, as an order after um, a federal panel of judges said that the map was gerrymandered and couldn't be used in the 2020 election, hence why we have this commission that was set up, hence why they drew a map. It returns Frederick County completely to the 6th District. Um, Now the process for getting that approved and in place for the election is something that we're still watching. Um, There's been rumor about it going to the General Assembly, um, whether they're going to be able to do that in their last 17-ish days or if they're going to have to call a special session. Lots still up in the air. It's going to be interesting to see what the governor ultimately tries to do. His nonpartisan redistricting bills did not make it during over to the opposite chambers or been picked up by either chambers. Um, you know, we talked about that formal, informal crossover date um, and, and what that means for bills. The fact that we haven't really heard much on it pretty much guarantees that those bills are dead. Um, so, but what did happen is Governor Larry Hogan and governor, a former governor, Arnold Schwarzenegger from California, which does have a nonpartisan redistricting commission, um, they uh, wrote an amicus brief uh, for the U.S. Supreme Court case that uh, Attorney General Brian Frosch will be defending along with his team at the U.S. Supreme Court on Tuesday. Um, So that is why the Terminator is going to be there on Tuesday. Um, So uh, essentially... We've got a lot happening on the 6th District. I Probably we've discussed it ad nauseum. People are probably uh, nauseated by hearing it or looking at the maps because, of, you know, just looking at the lines, it's actually it's overwhelming. Um, a small portion of it has been potentially fixed by this commission. It's not official yet, though. So, you know, we're against essentially the start of the 2020 U.S. Census, which right. is going to put us into our annual decennial redistricting process. We don't have a nonpartisan solution for it at this time. We still have Democratic majorities in both uh, chambers, but we have a Republican governor. I think we're going to see a huge power struggle over how these maps are are drawn and people are fed up you know we heard it uh down in montgomery county they heard it again out in um hagerstown for the last congressional uh well the commission's meeting where they discussed the new maps there's just a lot of tension building over these maps which people have dealt with over the last decade but aren't per se reflective of nationally what people are looking for residents are looking for in their voting maps, nor is it reflective of so many other things. So um, that the key takeaways are is that a new map has been drawn. It 
potentially is going to the General Assembly, who does not have a lot of will, it looks like, to pass it. Um, the U.S. Supreme Court is picking it up again. A federal court might be approving the map, too. And then we got to see if there's time to put it in place before November of 2020, right. you know, and long before that, because we got to set up our ballots. There's it's a it's a it's it's a slow moving avalanche. <laughs> yeah. And I'm I think one of the biggest monkey wrenches that maybe not enough people are talking about is what if the Supreme Supreme Court uh, overturns the or sides with Brian Frosch's appeal, then we just go back to the map that we've already had? Well, kind of, because so when you obviously a Supreme Court's not going to issue multiple opinions on the same case. So what they did is they asked different questions this time. And one of those questions is whether or not it's practical and responsible for the state to use a map for one election, whether or mm. not, you know, we should just have a 2020 map when we're going to go through a systematic, full-blown <clears throat> redistricting of the entire state in the following year um, before the, 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 the then subsequent um, presidential election. But, I mean, I think 2020 is, is a good example of why it is important because, uh, hypothetically, people's constitutional rights have been violated by a map that we've been using since 2011, and then you're going to have another presidential election under that map. Um, Walter Olson, who's the co-chair and is a Republican and lives here in Newmarket, um, told me, you know, like, anytime you're dealing with, you know, a constitutional violation, you want to ideally correct that as fast as you right. can. I mean, he works at Cato. He works on these issues. Issues. And, you know, that's a common sense statement, I think, that you don't want uh, constitutional violations to, to persist. Ideally, we go to the Supreme Court and we get a decision. The Supreme Court has been very hesitant to rule on this. Um, so ultimately, the second monkey ranch that could really throw into the system is what if the court turns around in June and finally offers a national opinion on on redistricting? And I'm not holding my breath for that. <laughs> <laughs> but we've seen substantial changes to right. the court, you know. It's very possible that with the new um, makeup of the court that maybe they've changed their mind enough to want to do that. You know, is 2019 the, the year that we're finally going to see a redistricting opinion? I'm, I'm not sure. I'm not holding my breath on a lot of things with this. I was going to say, realistically, what would you put the chances from zero to 100 uh, percent that we use a new map in 2020 and they get the map completed in time for the election? I mean, I, I have no answer for that, so I'll, I'll go a, uh, in even 50-50. So you're know? not feeling great. I'm not feeling great either way, like I, for the reasons I laid out, because we don't seem to have a, a state government that's willing to look at new maps, you know, the bodies that would ultimately have to prove this. And, and the tension with the, I mean, they, they've been fighting over this for years, um, you know, so, and, and like I said, I'm not holding my breath on the Supreme Court making a decision either. So, I mean, it could be 0%, it could be 100%, you know, what's interesting is that we will get radically different outcomes depending on who makes what moves mm -hmm. you know uh and i think that's a little that's a little scary for you know voters here in maryland um mm -hmm. 
So, I, I, yeah, I, I can't predict it. Um, I'm hoping to be at the rally on Tuesday and, and bring some, you know, information back on what the League of Women Voters and Common Cause is saying about this on top of, you know, who else shows up outside right. the Supreme Court. I mean, very honestly, we could see people from many states coming. Uh, this is, you know, an important case for a lot of people, uh, whether you're in North Carolina or any of the other gerrymandered uh, states, uh, you know, look or just looking for solutions to our voting system. I think that I will say with some degree of certainty that I do think that in the coming decades, we are going to see substantial changes to nationally how we vote, whether that's mm-hmm. ranked choice voting, whether that's, you know, uh, 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 redistricting. You know, this just seems to be a trend and, and something that's picking up momentum people are fed up with. Right. The the ranked choice voting thing is, is super interesting. We got a little taste of it in Maryland. I know. And I think then she went through little, it. I think it's a little too soon little for too Maryland, soon. but we're seeing some other states that are implementing that, which is a, a super interesting system to me. And if you want to read more about it, you know, just a plug for one of our former colleagues. <laughs> we do have Nancy Lavin. She's great. Mm-hmm. She's over there writing for Fair Vote, who deals exclusively with ranked choice voting. So if you want to, if you don't know what it is and you want a real good primer, look up Nancy Lavin, look up Fair Vote. Uh, you know, it's something that on the horizon in my opinion right for sure um so you mentioned on tuesday you're going to be down at the rally on the sixth district what else are we looking forward to next week you think I think we're obviously more voting. Um, the beer franchise laws looks like it's going to be uh, debated and voted on in the Senate. Um, I think that we'll also see a final decision on the handgun permit review board, at least in the Senate. Um, I think we'll see... Uh, potentially some movement on the Clean Energy Jobs Act, which is still stuck in the Senate. Uh, I spoke with the chairman over in the House who's dealing with it. His committee listened to the bill and then has just let it sit. He told me they're waiting to see what the Senate does. Um, There have been some amendments put onto it, one of them by Senator Michael Huff, which would eliminate waste to energy facilities such as Wheelabrator or Dickerson, um, which are these incinerators that we have in the state that burn trash uh, to make energy, removing them from tier one renewable energy sources and um, not subsidizing them. But, you know, there's a lot of debate about whether we should really be taking the state to 50% renewable energy when it's taken us uh, help me do some math 2004 to uh 2019 we don't get in this for math yeah i know I think like that's 15 i think that's 15 years yeah so i mean it's taken us 15 years to get to 25 percent, and now they want us to double it in 10 so and doing a huge carve out in-state carve out for solar and for wind so there is some apprehension about that i don't know if we'll see the numbers change or if we're just gonna get a uh, actually oh my goodness i'm actually wrong so the Clean Energy Jobs Act was voted on in the Senate. It did make it out of there. These are things that are going to actually come up probably in the House if they don't just flat out reject it. So mm. there's a big push for that. I apologize. A lot of bills have been moving. <laughs> um, so we actually did make it out of the Senate with that one. Um a pipeline, though, natural gas pipelines and the water regulations with those is, is coming up for a vote in the Senate. Um, you know me. I'm a little bit nerdy on these environmental things. Uh, so uh, definitely lots of things to watch. Uh, oh, and we're also still waiting to see if the Senate picks up on uh, banning that pesticide that mm-hmm. we talked about at length. And we won't try and pronounce because everyone's wrong, no matter how you say yeah, it. Yeah, and I don't even have the word in front of me, yeah, so I wouldn't even know where to start. Chlor- 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 something. Chlorpyrifrose. I think is right. is pretty close, uh, but that might be the pretty close of a very <laughs> wrong pronunciation. So you know we're still waiting on the Senate. Uh, the House did pass a ban on that. 
um, you know, these are important topics, things that are going to be affecting farmers, voters, just residents of Frederick County. So. Exactly. Well, Samantha, it was great to have you in studio and and do this. Um, That's all the time we have for this week, but uh, we'll talk next week. Sounds good.